0: Asked you this morning that I would go through some of the problems with the um, relationship of Einsteinian time to whether or not God lives in time. So I'll, I'll go through some of those problems again. Number one is the variables that are involved. There are two um, two portions of it that can be you can make either one you want the constant or the and the other one the variable. And if you make x the constant, y becomes the variable. If you make y the constant, x becomes the variable. And so time and matter, are either one of those could be the one that's variable. And so in the idea of Einsteinian relativity, you don't have to have time be the thing that's variable. You could have matter be the thing that's variable and time be the constant. So that's one thing. That's just up to the mathematician, you know. He just tosses a coin and goes, well, time or matter, see which one's going to come out variable. So it comes out of space, right? Because it landed on its edge. Mm -hmm.
1: Um,
0: Yes, another problem is that the speed of light is taken to be an absolute and we can't establish the speed of light as an absolute. We have no way of uh, measuring whether or not the speed of light is an absolute (laughs) and whether or not there might be things that go faster than that. So when you take the speed of light as an absolute, that's just a problem with the theory itself. But it is one of the problems. Okay, number uh, three. I've got these all numbered differently, so I'm having a struggle here. (laughs) Number three. Um, We cannot say that when we apply, we, we cannot apply that which belongs to the physical realm to that which is spirit. So when we are talking about the relationship of matter to matter in Einsteinian relativity, then we can't take that and automatically start talking about spirit as if spirit automatically obeys the same laws that matter does. So when we say, well, Einsteinian time says that there's this relativity between two uh, objects, one of which is stable and one of which is moving, and so therefore we can say God might be like this. We've immediately made the jump from matter to spirit, and we don't have any scientific data that will tell us whether or not spirit follows those same laws. Okay? That's a matter of revelation. And then uh, number four, anything that man comes up with. You didn't get that. Um,
1: who
0: says, who says that spirit obeys the same laws as matter? We want to put it very simply. <laughs> who says that spirit obeys the same laws as matter? Who says that spirit follows the same laws as matter? Who says that matter follows the same laws as spirit? Well, we could do that, but we don't have any laws that govern how you know how spirit reacts in relationship to uh, movement and that kind of stuff. Okay. How long is a or, yeah? How long is a quart? How heavy is an inch? Okay. It's about what you're saying. Yeah taking one system and applying it to something else. Okay, and last thing. No. Fourth thing, right? Fourth thing. Um, That which we come up with from our finite mind in observation of the universe has to be secondary to God's revelation. What he says about uh, himself and the creation through revelation must always come before what we figure out with our finite mind. In other words, if we figure out something with our finite mind, and God says something that's different about reality in the scripture. We have to take that first before what we've figured out with our heads. Because his infinite mind communicating to us that information must come prior to what we figure out or think we figured out with our finite mind. So observations made with a finite mind have to be subject to or secondary to revelation from an infinite mind. So if God says in his word that he, re- he relates to time in a particular fashion we can apply all the theories we want that we've come up with our finite minds the scripture still says God has still communicated to us that he lives a certain way and we just have to accept what he says on that because it's a matter of revelation and then the last thing is that God is light is a moral statement this is what the, the verse that is commonly Use to try to say, well, because God is light, then God relates to time this way. Okay. But God is light is a moral statement. That's in, uh, 1 John 1 verse 4. Did Einstein hold to
2: that? What? That?
0: That God is light? Oh, no, he, I don't think he... That's, this is what a lot of people use. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where Einstein stood in relations. I don't, I don't think he was a Christian. So... Now, I could see Van and Brown saying something like this, possibly, but not, uh... Einstein. Bernhard von Braun. Uh, The second chapter, verses 9 through 11 or something like that, he defines what what light and darkness are there by uh, whether you love or do not love your brother. Uh, Oops. Chapter chapter 2, 9, 10, and 11. He talks about light and darkness in relationship to loving or not loving your brother. Yeah, First John. Okay. Now, somebody pointed out to me that this does not invalidate Einsteinian time in relationship to matter. I'm not saying that Einsteinian time or the theory of relativity as it stands is necessarily wrong. It remains yet to be prove, proven. Proved or whatever. I think both are correct. Um, but I'm not saying that that necessarily is wrong I'm simply saying you can't use the uh, the theory of Einsteinian time to try to prove that God lives outside of time it doesn't work there's all kinds of reasons why you can't this is obviously not an exhaustive list as to why it doesn't apply you can expand your own list Um, before we go into prophecy the idea of prophecy I want to give you a syllogism not a well it's sort of a syllogism it's a, a line of reasoning that is used in the book um, we talked about this this morning it's used in the book God and Timelessness by Nelson Pike um, put out by Schocken, S-H-O-C-K-E-N Shocken Books um, yeah they're shocking sometimes yeah. okay but remember we were talking this morning about if God sees that you're going to do this in the future that it would have to be a fixed event well he gives the reasoning that's behind this and um, If you don't get this, don't worry about it. Uh, if you don't get it while we're going through, because I'll let, you know, I'll let make the book available so people can look at it, write it down, etc. But some of you should be able to get this as we're going through, if we take it slowly. Okay? This is from, uh, page, this is from, yeah, God and Timelessness by Nelson Pike, Shark and Brooks, and it's page 59 and 60. Okay? He's going through the reasoning as to why it must be, a a person's will is not free if God knows what they're going to choose in the future. Number one, Yahweh is omniscient and Yahweh exists at T1, that is, at a particular time Yahweh exists T1, entails, that statement entails or involves, if Jones does A at T2, which is another time, then Yahweh believes at T1, which is the former time, that Jones does A at T2. You get that? If Yahweh exists at a particular time and he is omniscient, then that entails the idea, it involves the idea, that he knows then what Jones is going to do later. Basically what it's saying. He knows at T1 what Jones is going to do at T2, at the, at the other time, at the later time. He knows that Jones will do A, which is the action. Okay? <clears throat> Two. If Yahweh is, parenthesis, essentially, in parenthesis, omniscient, then, Yahweh believes P entails P. In other words, if Yahweh is omniscient, whatever Yahweh believes is true, is true. If he believes that this fact is a fact, it's a fact. Okay? If he's omniscient. Number three. uh, That's according to the doctrine of divine, divine infallibility. Okay, number three. It is not within one's power at a given time so to act that both P and not P are true. In other words, you can't both do and not do something at the same time. You're either doing it or you're not doing it, but you can't do both at the same time. 4. It is not within one's power at a given time so to act that something believed by an individual at a time prior to the given time was not believed by that individual at the prior time. In other words, if I act, I cannot act in such a way That if someone knew ahead of time what I was going to do, that I I made it such that they did not believe that I was going to do that. I can't act in such a way that they will, that that will change their knowledge. Okay? It is not, number five, it is not within one's power at a given time so to act that an individual existing at a time prior to the given time did not exist at the prior time. In other words, it's not possible for me to act in such a way that Yahweh, having existed at a prior time, existed at a prior time, knowing what I was going to do, it's not possible for me to act in such a way as to cause him to cease to exist. See, to cause him to cease to have existed at the prior time. He's got to cover all the possibilities, being a philosopher. Number six: If Yahweh believes at T1 that Jones does A at T2, then if it is within Jones's power at T2 to refrain from doing A. Then either one, now he's summarizing, either one, it was within Jones's power at T1, so to act that Yahweh believed P at T1, and P is false. In other words, it, it makes God's knowledge false of what he was going to do. Or two, which by the way eliminates foreknowledge, the reasoning we were using this morning. Or two, it was within Jones's power at T2, so to act that Yahweh did not believe as he did believe at T2, or three it gets funnier as you go or three it was within Jones's power at T2 so to act that Yahweh did not exist at T1 <laughs> okay number seven if Yahweh is essentially omniscient essentially in parenthesis then the first alternative in the consequence of line six that's the one we just read is false from lines two and three number eight the second alternative in the, in the consequent of line 6 Is false from line 4 Number 9 The third alternative In the consequent of line 6 Is false from line 5 10 Therefore If Yahweh is essentially omniscient And believes at T1 That Jones does A at T1 Then it was not within Jones's power at T2 To refrain from doing A From lines 6 and 7 through 9 11 therefore the last one hang on therefore if Yahweh is essentially omniscient and exists at T1 then if Jones does A at T2 it was not within Jones's power at T2 to refrain from doing A from lines 10 and 1 now some of you got that some of you didn't but you can get this and uh, copy it down look at it so forth study it um Rather interesting, that's the line of argument, though, that we used basically this morning to say that if God knows ahead of time, it must basically be a certain event and not a, not a contingent event, and he just throws in all the other, well, what appear to be him to be all the other alternatives uh, that are possible, including making Yahweh go out of existence and things that would seem a bit silly to talk about, but you have to include those alternatives if you're going to be there. Okay, so he gives you a little bit of reasoning. Concerning uh, knowledge and free will, etc etc mm-hmm.
1: hmm?
0: Well, he's trying to follow the commonly used definition of the word omniscient, meaning that he, he defines that at the beginning. If uh, Yahweh is omniscient, then if Yahweh believes at T1 that Jones does A at T2, Jones does A at T2. Okay. It is true that that Yahweh knows at T1 what Jones will do at T2. Well, the only thing he's arguing for there is that if Yahweh is omniscient in that fashion, then it it follows that man does not have a free will. So then you have to go back and find out is is Yahweh omniscient in that fashion? But if you take... um, if you look at his first consequent, the first consequent in there, you can see that um, he has he has ruled it out on the basis of. Let me see. He has ruled it out on the basis of line. What? Not that you'll probably remember which line, but okay. Um. Okay. The the. If Yahweh is essentially omniscient, then the first alternative—that is, uh, I'll read the first alternative—it was within Jones's power at T2 so to act that Yahweh believed P at T1, and P is false. Okay, he's saying you have, you have the ability to act in such a way that um, that you can make what Yahweh believed at T1 false. You see. Which, is, which basically cuts across your uh, definition of omniscient that you established in the beginning, and he says this is false um, from lines two and three. Okay, so only by denying the definition of omniscient can you um, can you come up with the idea that man has a free will. Another interesting, yeah, very good, uh, very good book actually. He starts out trying to be positive trying to say, well, there's probably good things and bad things to the idea of God's knowing absolutely everything in the future and and God's living outside of time. There are probably some good things and some bad things. And then when he gets to the end of the book, he gets more and more negative as he goes. And he gets to the end of the book and he says, I started out much more positive than I'm ending up. Um, the reason being that during the course of my study, uh, I, I thought that there were going to be some good things and some bad things, but I'm beginning to ask whether or not an idea of a timeless God should ever be included in a Christian theology. See. So, just from his study, he ended up not... Uh, he's, he's very fair though he, he doesn't come to a conclusion And say Blah this is, this is the way it is He always leaves every, every chapter With a question Just leaves you With a question in your mind He never um, Says this is the way it is He says this is the way it seems Is what he ends up with Okay Now uh, we We're going to look at Prophecy In relationship to these Two views of Time And we'll go back To our little drawing here Our two little drawings we have the eternal now God.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Big square. Aha!
1: Uh-huh.
0: Yay! Anything for chalk to light. Okay. Uh It's uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. Oops. Whatever. Whatever this does out here, it might end. It might not. Um, okay. That's our little thing there. Um, And under under the, the idea of duration and under the idea of the eternal now God, we have two different views of prophecy because we have two different views of God's relationship to time. Under the eternal now God, we have the idea that God sees ahead of time what is going to happen and he speaks to the prophet and he says, this is what's going to happen because he sees already that this event is actually going to take place in this fashion. So that becomes your view of prophecy if you say that he lives outside of time knows what's going to happen, you would say prophecy is God saw what was going to happen and God spoke to the prophet and said, this is what is going to happen. And then the prophet wrote it and then of course it happened because it was going to happen. We've already talked about the fact that it's a fixed event because it was going to happen. How about that this morning? Now over here you have a different view. You have that God speaks to the prophet and says, this is what I am going to do in the course of history and then moves in the course of history to, um, to bring that about. Now, if you, if you were looking through your uh, verses of Scripture on the first section under Absolute Foreknowledge, it's the, the verses that are used to, to, to support the idea of Absolute Foreknowledge. And under there, it says many of those are prophecies. Now, if you haven't done it yet, I'd like you to go through and find all the ones that are prophecies and note how many of them deal with salvation and how many of them deal with world history with matters in world history. You'll find that none of them deal with salvation. They all deal with matters of world history. okay? Which God, in his power, can bring to pass. And he can also bring it to pass without having to make one person be saved or lost in the process. As he guides the the events of world history in a particular direction, he does not have to abort free will to do so. He can have Jesus come back, and that doesn't mean people will be um, saved or lost because of it. Because Jesus comes back. There can be a new heaven and a new earth whether we're in it or not, you see. And that doesn't determine whether we're saved or lost as to whether or not, just because he says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Do you understand? In other words, if God determines to do something in the course of events of world history and he says this is the way it's going to be and in his power he brings it about, then that doesn't make me be saved or lost. It's still my choice in relationship to God as to whether or not I'm going to be saved or lost. Whether or not I'm on the new heaven or earth depends upon my choice, but whether or not there's going to be a new heaven or a new earth is God's choice. Okay? And when he says, this is what I'm going to do, then he can say with total foreknowledge, this is what I'm, this is what's going to happen because he's going to make it happen. Okay? And we're going to see some examples of that tonight when we look at all the verses that have to do with foreknowledge, all the verses that have to do with predestination in the New Testament, which we're going to do. Okay. Um, now, so then... In this this case, it's that God speaks to the prophet, says, this is what I'm going to do in history, and then he brings it about. This is also the way God says he declares the end from the beginning and from the ancient times the things which have not been done. Isaiah 46. I've seen this verse quoted, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, comma, and I've seen the rest of it left off. I've actually seen that in many doctrine books, in studying the the, the doctrine of foreknowledge, that people will quote half of this verse and then not go on to quote the rest of it, which tells you how he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. This is verse 10 I'm at, folks. Isaiah 46, verse 10. You can read verses 8 and 9, which is the beginning of the thought. Declare, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. That's how he declares the end from the beginning. He plans it, and then He does it. He speaks it, and He brings it to pass. Okay? He moves in history to do that. A reference that goes along with that is Isaiah 48.3. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from My mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Isaiah 48.3. I declared the former things long ago and they went forth from my mouth and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. God proclaimed what was going to happen in the future on the basis of the fact that he was going to choose to do it. You see? So God can say to a prophet, there's going to be a person born of a virgin. You see? Because that's something that God moves in history to do. It's not something that he necessarily has to see ahead of time. To be able to say that it will happen, and you'll find that the, prophecy, the majority of prophecies that have to do with the life of Jesus are in that vein, and the other ones have to do with either the context of, of the history around him, or they have to do with the other things that God could bring to pass in the um, that would result in Jesus's um, being delivered up. Um, the um, very, you have to be very careful at that point because we assume. That because Jesus was crucified, that it was prophesied that he would be crucified. You see? but we don't have a lot of substantial basis. Even uh, Psalm 22 is not completely substantial basis because um, it's only if we apply that in a in sort of a messianic way to Jesus can we be sure that it really referred to Jesus. Say we have to be careful with that. We also have to be careful with the Greek word hina which means, in order that, which is used in the phrase, in order that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Uh, Yeah, let's not jump into that right away. Um, We'll get to that, though. So that when God God speaks things, he can bring them to pass in the course of events. And what we were talking about was when Jesus was delivered up, it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus was going to be crucified. And you might say things like, uh, well, um, doesn't it say that he became a curse for us? and so then he would have to have been hung on a tree in order to become a curse no, Paul the Apostle said he became a curse for us he did not say he had to become a curse he did not say it was prophesied that he would become a curse it says he became a curse so the only thing that he's saying is Jesus got crucified whether or not that was prophesied is another matter entirely you see we've been very frequently taught that the idea that Jesus became a curse for us was because of a prophecy in the Old Testament but it's not It's an after-the-fact statement that Paul makes. Jesus became a curse for us because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. It was not written, Jesus would be hung on a tree. Read your prophecies carefully, folks, in the Old Testament. It doesn't say Jesus will be crucified. It does say He will give His life. He will be bruised.
2: Well, it states that it curses anyone that's hung on a tree, and then, it, and then uh, Paul says that Christ has become a curse for us. I don't understand,
0: you know, the separation. The separation that I'm making. Yeah. Okay. If if the Bible said in the Old Testament that um, that the Messiah would be hung on a tree, and then Paul said, you see, he was hung on a tree, then we'd have to look back and say it was prophesied but the only thing it says about being hung on a tree is cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree but it never never seems to prophesy that Jesus would actually be hung on a tree and then after it has happened Paul looks back at the event and says Christ became a curse for us And and he sees that Jesus fit the situation of the Old Testament he became a curse for us but that doesn't mean that necessarily Jesus was hung on a tree because the Old Testament said that he would be it's just that Paul is looking back at the cross and saying this is what happened he became a curse for us because he fit the situation of being hung on a tree. Okay, so then it wasn't because it was prophesied that necessarily Jesus hung on a tree, but we're taught that very frequently. But
2: didn't he have to die on a tree? that he, he, he could have been
1: stoned and, and still been a curse for
0: him. I don't know. I don't know if stoning would have fit the um, would have fit the prophecies in the Old Testament about, about his deliberately giving his life. Um, and other things, um, interceding for the transgressors and so forth. I don't know if stoning would have fit that, but it didn't have to necessarily be crucifixion. He simply had to—he uh, simply had to give up his soul for the sin of his people.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Never thought of it that way. Could have been hung, yeah. I, I guess so. Anyway, maybe it will become a little bit clearer when we look at the Greek word hina. the greek word hina means in order that in order that hmm? <laughs> hina yeah hina that's greek means in order that in order that it might be fulfilled it, it introduces that phrase this word when it is used Uh, we have commonly been taught that this word means only one thing. But it doesn't have to be taken in only one way. It can be taken in more than one way. And it would appear that some of the prophecies, although not all, some of the prophecies that are related to the death of Jesus, uh, to things like the uh, betrayal of of Judas, of Jesus, uh, to events that surrounded the cross, um, no, that, that cross happened to be the cross, but some of the events that surrounded that appear to be, some of them appear to have been God's movement in history to bring those things about and some of them appear to be that the apostles now get this the apostles saw a connection between the event that took place and something that had been said in the Old Testament and not that the thing in the Old Testament determined that what had happened would take place but they simply saw a connection between the two and said thus it was fulfilled. Okay? Because some of the statements in the Old Testament are broad enough that more than one person could fulfill them or more than one event could fit into that category. Do you understand that? I'll give you an example. In the book of Proverbs it says, "Um, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it should be counted shame and folly to him. Well, there was one time that I answered a person before I heard what they were talking about. And did I feel foolish? Yes. Did it bring shame to me? Yes. You say person said after 45 minutes, Mike, that's wonderful counsel that you've given me, but that's not my problem. You see, I answered the matter before I heard it. Okay, well, and then someone could come along, looking at that event, and they could write, Hina, thus it was fulfilled, which was spoken in the Scripture, and they could quote that verse. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it should be counted shame and folly to him. And the, that, that doesn't mean that the... Um, Did I say that wrong? Okay. That doesn't mean that because the verse of Scripture says that, that I had to do what I did. It doesn't mean that it determined that it would take place. It simply means the person saw a connection between what the event that had taken place in my life and a verse of Scripture and said, thus it was fulfilled. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it should be counted shame and folly to him. There were a lot of people that betrayed Jesus. There were a lot of people that denied Him. A lot of people that ate bread with him lifted up their heel against him in shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. You see? And so there are a lot of people that fit that that particular text, not just Judas. Which, by the way, all all the prophecies concerning Judas are plural. They're all plural. Even the one that says, let his bishopric, that is his office, another take is in the context of, of plural enemies talking about plural, it's talking in plurality, enemies, my enemies. Okay, that's where you guys are going to have to do your Bible study. Dig, dig, dig. You see, you have to look at those things. What about all those prophecies? Okay, but now I want I want to be sure that you got this. You got the point? Go through it again. No.
2: made
0: The fact that the apostles saw a connection between an event that took place and an Old Testament Scripture does not mean that the event had to take place because the Old Testament said something about it. You see? And the word hina can be read both ways. Now, there are many prophecies that fit into the situation that... Because it was spoken this way, it had to happen that way because God was going to bring it about that way. Such as the prophecy about uh, thus it was fulfilled which was spoken um, O Bethlehem Bethlehem of Judea or Ephraim or whatever um, because even though you're the smallest of all the cities of, of um, Judea yet from you shall come forth him that was from everlasting, etc. Et and that was how Herod knew and the people knew that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, what was that? It was something that God did in history. He brought. He said he's going to be born in Bethlehem, you see? And it's not outside of the realm of God's power to move upon a Roman emperor and say, tax the world, you see? Now, that would appeal to a Roman emperor. Just think of all those taxes coming into Rome. Okay? Tax the world. And what, what happens when he does that? Well, Joseph and Mary are going to have to go to Bethlehem. You okay? see? Sometimes we don't, um, because we've been given one line for so long, we forget that there are other ways that these things could have been handled by God, other than having to know what was going to happen in the future, or having to, to, um, uh, things having to come to pass because the prophecy had been, or a particular scripture had said something about it. Although that, as I pointed out, is a case where God could have said, "This is what's going to happen," and then brought it about in history, simply by speaking to an emperor and saying, "Tax the world," just put a little thought in his head. That doesn't that doesn't destroy the emperor's salvation. <laughs> Might bring a lot of money into his kingdom. to oh,
2: make if God said you yeah. have to put it to him to do this, this guy still would have to make a choice. Oh yeah. And then what if he said no? Well, he would
0: have found another way to get them to Bethlehem. <laughs> and then it wouldn't have. Then the New Testament wouldn't have read that this was how it happened. It would have read something else of how he got them to Bethlehem. See, all God had to do was get them to Bethlehem. There are all kinds of ways God could have gotten them to Bethlehem. He happened to use a taxation. Okay. Um, what about the Daniel implementation of the
2: empire? You know, how the empire is sold by a king? He's God put it out to all of them.
0: Yeah. See, no no wait, let's get the importance in world history of this though. That the reason that those things worked out the way that they did was in order that the world might be prepared for the reception of the Messiah. You see, God was working in history to bring the Messiah into the world. It centers around the whole thing centers around the magnitude of the cross. You see, the magnitude of the atonement, if you want to put it that way, if it wasn't going to be the cross. But the magnitude of the atonement for the sins of the whole world was centered in that prophecy. And so we can't just see it as God was fiddling around with some nations. Okay? So let's keep that in mind. We'll get to that. Um, from, you can, If you could just carry it out with your own thinking, you can see very clearly from my particular point of view that I don't believe necessarily that the book of Revelation has to happen. I believe that the great probability is that it will because of the selfishness of man. But I don't believe that it necessarily has to happen. Uh, lots of prophecies didn't happen. You know, Jonah's a false, poor Jonah, he's a false prophet because his prophecy didn't come to pass. You see, the problem with prophecy is that it, most of it's conditional. You ever notice that? I know, I know, that I know of, there's only one I can think of in the Old Testament that isn't, and that one, that one is that God will not flood the earth again. <laughs> but then that's, you know, that's up to him, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Yeah,
2: normally, I don't think anything out there. I not think i out there. I don't think I've been out there. I do But whatever there was, the prophecy did come true. It was spoken on a consistent basis. And I don't find Revelation saying that. I find it saying that the only thing it does say is that if anything takes me, it goes
0: back to it. You know,
1: there's name. It's a pretty serious crime. Mm-hmm. I don't find it consistent. Oh, but
0: what's what's the whole point? What's God trying to get people to do all the way through the book of Revelation with all those judgments? No, what's he trying to get the people to do? Unbelievers, those that are worshipping demons. What's he trying to get them to do? Ah, oh, yet they would not repent from their sorceries, you see? Yeah. So it appears to be that what he was trying to get people to do was repent. Uh huh. What if it read a different way? You see? uh, that, he, he seems to be dealing with probability, the, the great probability that people will not repent rather than um, the fact that people will or will not. You understand? You know, whether or not they can is another question. And he seems to be dealing with the probability of that. Very remotely. So extremely remotely, I'd have to say it's negligible. <laughs>
1: see?
0: Yeah. The thing is, that, that with the, the knowledge that God has of selfishness and the way that it grips man and how very few people already have turned from selfishness, you see, in the course of history, um, it, it's pretty certain book of Revelation is going to happen, you see. The probability is almost to the point where it's negligible and yet, God would have to leave the possibility of it if man actually can repent. But, you know, it's really slim.
1: <laughs>
0: There's some broad outlines and movements in history that God has determined. Like, a very broad one was, a Messiah will come. It's a very broad... Thing in history that he determined would take place once man sinned. That happened after man sinned. He determined this is what's going to happen, and told Adam and Eve that it would begin to take place. And you'll notice too that the prophecies concerning the Messiah's coming are general to start with. It'll be the seed of a woman, Paul says, and he says it'll deal and deal in some measure with the serpent. But that's all. And then as you go through the history of Israel, they become more and more specific as they go because more and more of it is pinned down in history you see because of choices that have already been made and then finally it gets down to he will be born in Bethlehem you see but a lot of the prophecies are just statements about what his general character is going to be he will be the governor of the nations and that kind of stuff but it gets more and more specific as you go Gordon
2: says that, that alternative existed before the
0: fall uh, the alternative of what?
2: Alternative of oh
0: yeah yeah we'll get to that <laughs> Okay, let's go on. In talking about prophecy then, we have to be careful when we talk about prophecy as to whether or not it was something that God said he was going to do in the course of world events or if it was something that God, which in that case it would probably not be contingent. Tim? Probably not be contingent then. If God said this is what is going to happen and he was going to bring it past with his power, that would be a case where it wasn't contingent. Now there are a lot of things like that though that he says "I'm going to do this that are, that are contingent upon what man does like Jonah with Nineveh um, there's one in first Samuel 23 verse seven seven through 11 seven through 13 or something like that um, that didn't happen God said this is what will happen and it didn't because it was contingent upon what someone did you say see. it
1: like
0: oh it's an obvious contingency yeah, it was an obvious contingency, but there was no contingency stated in Jonah's prophecy. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And they said, maybe if we repent, God will change his mind. And Jonah says, the reason that I ran from you, God, this is chapter 4, verse 1, the reason that I ran from you, God, was because you were a God who could change your mind. He was afraid he'd, be, and he'd end up as a false prophet if the people repented. And he went out and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Um, Yes, the problem with Jonah. Okay, we're talking about prophecy. Yes, yes. So, you get two different views of prophecy depending upon which view of time you're going to take in God's relationship to time. Now, we have to remember that a lot of prophecies are contingent upon the free will of man. And you see things like um, Jeremiah 18 where he says concerning the, the potter, the pots. He says that if, the, if I, dis, I declare, I speak about a nation, concerning a nation, that I'm going to tear it down and uproot it and destroy it, and they repent, I will change my mind, the Hebrew word, of what I thought I was going to do to them, and I will not do it. And if a nation is doing righteousness, and then they turn and rebel and disobey my voice, then I will change my mind. Same word. I will change my mind about the good with which I was going to bless it, and I will destroy it. You see? You so um, there's events in history that change. God changes his activity in accordance with the way that man changes his activity. Okay, well let's um, go on. Yes, prophecy. Anyway, your view of prophecy depends on your view of time and uh, it doesn't work the other way around basically. Now, um, you're, I've got down here Romans nine, but you're listening to Romans 9. Yes, we want to look at some scripture concerning foreknowledge and concerning predestination. How's that? Grab you. First, concerning the word foreknowledge. Concerning the word foreknowledge. It means to know before or prior to. To know before. That is, prior to in respect to time, something else. To know at T1, T2. To know A at T1 from T2, okay? (laughs) Notice this about the word foreknowledge. It does not state in the word itself, because it only means to know ahead of time, it does not state within the word itself how long before the being knows. Okay? We commonly, when we think about the word foreknowledge, we always think of eternity but it does not say within the word how far before the being knew. The reason I say the being is because the word foreknowledge is used as people in the Bible too. Not just God. How about that? <laughs> we'll look at those verses. Number, uh, number three here. Well, I, number one was the definition. Number two was it does not state how long before. Sorry about that. Always <laughs> oh, messing people up on that. Number three, it does not state how it has come to be foreknown. It does not state how it has come to be foreknown. In other words, it doesn't tell you whether God lived out of time and saw that it was going to happen, or whether God said, this is what I'm going to do, and then chose to do it in history, and thus he knew what he was going to do, such as, I'm going to go to the store tomorrow. So I foreknow that I'm going to go to the store because I'm going to go to the store. The the word itself does not include how something is foreknown. It just says that it's foreknown. It doesn't say how far in advance. There may be more than one way to foreknow something, you see. Matter of fact, there are a lot of ways to foreknow something. You can read that in my book when it comes out. Number four. (laughs) You You didn't know I was writing a book on foreknowledge? Okay, number four. It does not, the word itself does not state what the object of the foreknowledge will be. In other words, what is foreknown? You have to find that out from the context. The word does not state what is foreknown. You have to get that from the context. A lot of people, when you hear the word foreknowledge, you assume these things that it's from eternity. You assume that it's because God can see the future. You assume you assume, in many cases it's because um, or it's people that are foreknown. And we're going to find that in many cases it wasn't people that were foreknown. It was other things that were foreknown. Okay? And this verse is used of men as well as of God. I mean, this word in this verse. This word is used in reference to men as well as in reference to God. In the Greek, it's just because it isn't translated that way that we don't recognize it um acts twenty six five and second Peter three seventeen acts twenty six five and second peter three seventeen acts twenty six five says this since they have known, this is Paul talking about the Jews, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Since they have known about me for a long time previously. It's from the word foreknowledge. They foreknew me. The word foreknowledge, it just isn't translated that way. Same word that's used of God. They foreknew me. They knew me before. They knew me previously. Okay? Second Peter three seventeen. Whoops! Hebrews going the wrong way. Second Peter three seventeen, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, in the Greek it says foreknowing this, be on your guard lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men you fall from your own steadfastness. And you beloved, foreknowing this, two cases it uses the word of men as well as of God. So. We have to be careful with our idea of foreknowledge that we don't see it as a particular uh, see it as a thing that we've just been told this is the way foreknowledge is, but have to find out what does the scripture how does the scripture use the word foreknowledge and in reference to what you say. Okay, so let's start with the word the uh, verses on foreknowledge in the scripture. Romans chapter 11 and verse 2, which you'll, I'll discuss this in my tapes on Romans 9 as well. Actually, Romans 9 through 11. Romans 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people, speaking of the Israelites, whom he foreknew. Note that it's spoken of a nation. He foreknew a nation. A people. Okay? The reason he could foreknow a nation, and he obviously did foreknow a nation because he told Abraham about it. Abraham, a nation's going to come out of you. I have made you the father of many nations. And so God moved in history not only to bring about the nation of uh, of Israel, but to preserve it and to defend it and protect it. And so God could say, there will be a nation and he could have foreknowledge from the time that he made the choice to bring that nation into existence he foreknew that that there would be a nation okay Abraham foreknew that there would be a nation too okay somebody once asked me um, well if God if if, if the scripture says that um, see how they put it if the scripture says that your heavenly father knows what you have need of before you ask him doesn't that indicate foreknowledge I said, no, I know what I need before I ask him to. That's why I asked. See? It just depends on how far in advance did he know. See? Somebody walks up to you and hands you a carburetor and says, the Lord told me to give you this for your car because you'll need it. And you go, my carburetor's doing fine. What you don't know is what the Lord knows about your carburetor. You see, two weeks later, your carburetor goes say, And you go, Aha, God had foreknowledge. Yeah, he knows the laws that he put into practice and he knew what was happening with your carburetor. Anyway. That's knowing from a from the laws of cause and effect. What was that? Would you like to share that with us? No, you don't want to share that with us. Okay. I didn't hear that one. Okay, so therefore God could foreknow the nation. Now, the argument that Paul was involved in here in this passage of scripture is this God wouldn't reject a nation that he planned to bring about, moved in history to keep it going, and he did put all this effort into God wouldn't just end up going and rejecting him, would he? Well, he came to that point at one time, almost did it. He almost did it. But his argument is here that God wouldn't do something something um, uh flippant with the nation of Israel after he's put all this into it, would he? You saying. Okay. So, that's his argument there. Anyway, it has to do with the nation and God could have foreknown it because he was going to do it. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. There's not very many of these references, by the way. So a lot of people think that there's oodles and oodles of scriptures, but there's not. <laughs> there's just a few. Acts um, 2.23. This man, that is Jesus in the context, this man... Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. Delivered up by the predetermined plan. Yes, it was predetermined that Jesus was going to be delivered up. That Jesus was going to die for the sins of the people. That was predetermined. You can see that from um, Isaiah 53. That was something that God was going to do in history. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God could know before that Jesus was going to be delivered up because he determined that that was going to take place. That Jesus was going to die for the sins of the people. He had determined that there was going to be an atonement and that he was going to be the one who fulfilled that. So it's no problem for him to foreknow that there was going to be someone delivered up because he had determined that he was going to allow himself to be delivered up and he was going to help bring it about. Okay? You you guys are going to have to do your studying on delivered up. Gordon Olson has some very good things to say about delivered up. Um, In other words, the plan was there before he was delivered up. Yeah, right. He was going to do it in history. And so before Jesus was delivered up, there was already a plan that he was going to be delivered up. And you can read that in Isaiah 53 and other related prophecies if there was a plan that that was going to happen ok a so predetermined plan therefore there could be foreknowledge It's um, as well he might be although you can't say for sure Peter might be making reference to the whole realm of prophecy from the Old Testament concerning the predetermined plan etc etc but we can't really tell for sure if he would be doing that ok and then uh, note, notice very interestingly enough that he does not confuse God's plans with their responsibility. He says this, you nailed him to a cross. (laughs) You see? This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. And he separates between their responsibility and the plan that God had that there would be an atonement. You, He says, you murdered him. That was quite a thing for Peter to say after he'd been trembling ten days before, hiding in a hiding in a room with the lot, doors locked. You he stepped out there and says, "You murdered him." Okay, First Peter one twenty. Having trouble finding my verses tonight. First Peter one twenty. For he was foreknown. The um, King James translation "foreordained" is a bad translation because the word in the Greek here is "foreknown." It's not the word ordained or predestined. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. He was foreknown, and this is in reference to his being a lamb without unblemished and spotless. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Okay, if he was foreknown, that has to be in one of two senses. Either Jesus was really slain before the foundation of the world, as another reference makes to him, slain before the foundation of the world. Either he really was slain, actually, or it was potential in the mind of God should man sin. You see? And yet that could be in God's mind that if man sins, that this would be the way that it would have to be dealt with. Okay? So, obviously, God would have had thoughts about the whole thing concerning um, concerning being giving himself as an atonement before he would have made man because when he before he when he even contemplates making man he also has to contemplate the possibility that man could fall and then what am i going to do if man falls you see so it already all be there in his mind i'm going to have to institute something in some way because of my great love for them to provide a way for them to be able to be forgiven and brought back to me so it would be in his mind before he even made man because the possibility was there that man could fall because man had a free will Okay, so it was there, it was in the mind of God. If man fell, the possibility was there and it was foreknown as a potential event. Okay, there are a lot of verses like that, foreknown before the foundation of the world, etc. Okay. Now, um, next one. 1 Peter 1, 2. Don't flip anywhere. It's on the same page probably. <laughs> First Peter 1, 2. It says this. Well, Let's read verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then the end of that, what we're chosen for, the result of that is that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, and so forth. Now, the problem here is the the gross, gross, interpretation that has taken place, and it's even here in the New American Standard. In the Greek, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those called to reside as aliens, and the word called, the word chosen here, modifies residing as aliens, or sojourners. To those called as residing as sojourners, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The word chosen signif- is modifying to be sojourners. Chosen to be sojourners. It does not have to do with chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see? The King James Version has translated it that way and then even the New American Standard here is translated it in that fashion. But it doesn't modify that. In the Greek. It modifies the word sojourners. It means a pilgrim. Okay? Person that's just staying here for a while. Guy living in a tent. (laughs) Okay? And it also says the way (laughs) we almost lost a glass of water. Okay? And it says the way that they are chosen as pilgrims or chosen to be pilgrims or that they might be pilgrims. And that is this, through or by or in, the actual word is in, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. As as people are in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, they are chosen to be pilgrims. If you are in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, you are chosen to be a pilgrim. How about them? Okay, by or in or through or with, the word can also be read, the sanctifying work of the Spirit is the way that we are chosen. This choosing, which is conditional, depends upon whether or not we are in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, this choosing, which relates to our being sojourners, doesn't relate to the words um, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, this choosing is conditional, And it relates to the words according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in that He knew the choosing according to sanctification. Did you get that? No. Okay. See if I can find a simpler way to say it. Okay. I don't know if I can do it. That's the problem. Huh? Translate the way I understand it from the Greek. Okay, I would say, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are called to reside as aliens, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It all runs together. That is, that they were chosen to be sojourners, and the way that they were chosen was by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and that was according to what God already knew. You see, he knew that there were going to be people who would be chosen according, or in the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He knew a group. Uh, By the way, it's a group context; it's not individual people. It's groups. Okay, but he knew that there was going to be this group of people, these these aliens, these sojourners, that were going to be that way because they were in the sanctifying work of the Spirit. See, a person that's not in the sanctifying work of the Spirit doesn't feel like a pilgrim here. You ever notice that? People that are unsaved feel very much at home. Here on the earth, people that are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit don't feel very much at home here. You see? And it's, we're, we are called as sojourners in the sanctifying or by the sanctifying or through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That is how we are called. It's conditional. And it only relates to the foreknowledge of God in this sense, that it was according to the foreknowledge of God that He knew that there were going to be people chosen in the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You see? It was a general group that He foresaw, the church. Anyway, does that help any? Okay, that is, there was a knowledge of this, that there would be a choosing by sanctifying before it happened to them. You see? There was a knowledge of the choosing by sanctifying. There was not a knowledge as to who would be sanctified. There was a knowledge that there would be choosing by sanctifying. What God foreknew was that process. He didn't foreknow the people. You understand? Okay, he foreknew that there would be this process, not that there would be, this. these people would be involved and those people would not. Whew. Okay. I know some of these are new thoughts and you're going to have to work them through, so. Sanctification means to be made holy. Yeah. When it says, in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, it's actually just one word. <laughs> sanctifying work, that is. Okay, now, so it's not the people that were known, but it's the principle that was known. The choosing in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to lightly touch on Romans 8:29, 28 and 29 because we're going to come back to it heavily later. So, I'm going to touch it Touch. On it Because it has the word foreknowledge in it But we're going to come back later tonight And discuss it in reference to predestination The word predestination We're going to take the whole thing Okay I'm going to briefly say this And then we're going to stop and have a break Romans 8, 29 For whom he foreknew Whom he foreknew The whom is plural Whom he foreknew He also predestined to what? To be saved? No. To become conformed to the image of His Son that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, who is the whom that He knew? It's Christians. It's from the verse before. It's those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we know, and the verse before it is just horrendously translated as well from the Greek, and we know that God is at work for good in all things to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. I didn't read it the way it's down here. <laughs> God doesn't make all things work and all things don't work. It's God that's working for good in the midst of all things to those who, are, who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Okay. Things don't work. Okay. So then, the people that are involved, the whom that's involved in 29 refers to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. So then, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The word predestination is... I'm going to get into that in a minute, but the word predestination is always used in reference to to what you are predestined. its It never refers to people. Okay, now we were talking about Romans 8.29 and the whom here, whom he did foreknow... It's those, it refers to the verse before, those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, that's a general category. It's a group. And it's also conditional. Whether or not you're in the group depends on whether or not you love God. Okay? Um, So, it's a group, and who is in the group is conditional. Now, we're going to go on to the word ordained. I just wanted to get that in there. We'll go on to the word ordained. And we'll look at the places where the word ordained is used in the Scripture. We'll come back to Romans 8:29, 30, so forth, um, under the word predestinate. The idea of being called according to His purpose. Um, I, instead of giving you a teaching on it, I'll refer you to a book that has great teaching on it, and that's God's strategy in human history. In the word study, chosen and elect. They point out the six different ways that the word chosen and elect are used, all of which are conditional as to whether or not you're chosen or elect. Okay? So, I'll I'll direct you to that. God's strategy in human history, the word study, chosen, elect. And they've done such a great job, I won't, won't try to do that. But you can read that. Okay? And they deal with the six different ways that the word elect is used for six different groups of people, and they show how that in every case it was conditional. I think, well, except for one, and that was Jesus, and he was chosen because of the plan of God. Okay. Um, uh, Ordained, yes. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Some of you probably don't even know these words exist. I mean, these places exist. (laughs) Ephesians 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus... "...for good works which God prepared beforehand..." Okay? And the word prepared here is ordained or appointed beforehand "...that we should walk in them." That is, according to the verses before, if you have faith and you get saved, because you have faith and you get saved through grace, then God has already prepared beforehand that you are to walk in good works. He's already got that prepared beforehand. The only way to get out of that is to get out of being a Christian. Not much of an alternative, but... The only way you can get out of walking in good works because God has it prepared that you will walk in that. Now, think about it for a minute. God's got it pre- prepared beforehand that a, if a person is a Christian, that they will walk in good works. See? Now, it, don't you think that it's sort of um, uh, intrinsic to living as a Christian? to walk in good works, you see. So God's got it all planned out that if you become a Christian, this is what you're going to do. Because the definition of becoming a Christian already involves that. So when God predetermines one thing, He's got the other one determined too. (laughs) Okay? It's your choice though as to whether or not you're going to be in that group. Okay, so God prepared beforehand that whoever becomes a Christian is going to walk in good works. It's the only way He could do it. Okay, Romans 9:23, which you're also going to hear about in um, in the Romans 9 through 11 tapes. Romans 9:23, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. The word "prepared" here is is ordained. He ordained, or he pre-appointed, he pre-appointed people unto glory. He pre-appointed people unto glory. Whom did he pre-appoint? The vessels of mercy. The vessels of mercy. How you become a vessel of mercy, or that is moving towards mercy, you'll you'll find out about that one that particular rendering of it in uh, the other tapes. But how you become a vessel moving towards mercy, or whether or not you are one, is your choice. So you can be a vessel moving towards honor, moving towards no honor, moving towards mercy, moving towards wrath. And the, the words in um, 22 where it says, vessels of wrath, or moving towards wrath, prepared for destruction... The word prepared is in the middle voice and it means they fitted themselves or they prepared themselves for destruction. So then the vessels of wrath have prepared themselves. Vessels moving towards wrath have prepared themselves for destruction and the vessels that are moving towards mercy, God has prepared that they're going to receive glory. He's got that all set out for them that if they are vessels moving towards mercy, that they are going to receive glory. So, But it depends on whether or not you choose Depends on what you choose as to whether or not you're a vessel moving towards mercy or a vessel moving towards wrath. That's your choice.
2: That be
0: the, the, in the imperfect was it perfect? It's either perfect or imperfect there. The um, the word could be passive or middle but um, people like Vines um, and there are a lot of other Greek scholars that, that can't accept the passive because of the context and so they say it has to be middle. You'll hear about that if you're listening to the tapes on Romans 9 you'll hear that. I can make some quotes from uh, Vines and some other guy. Strauss, I think his name is. Concerning that particular word. And why it has to be taken as the middle voice in the context. Um, Yes. Boy, it's going to be a real problem, isn't it, for people that are listening to this but don't have the other tapes? Well, buy the other tapes. (laughs) What can I say? Okay, the tape's on Romans 9, 10, 11, you see Okay So, how does it happen that you become a vessel moving towards mercy? Well, that's up to you And you can, we, you'll can you see that in the, in the other tapes You're a vessel towards honor If you cleanse yourself from these things, according to Paul Jude chapter 4 Jude, Jude verse 4 Jude chapter 4 Let's make a new heresy here Add four more verses or chapters to the Bible. Um, Jude verse 4 is a really interesting word. Very interesting. I would like to have someone read this in the King James Version. Jude verse 4. Very loudly. Someone please stand up and read it in the King James Version. Got it? Okay. It says they were before ordained of old unto this condemnation. Sounds like God made them be condemned, doesn't it? The word is not even ordained. It is for written. pro it means to write beforehand. pro okay? In Okay? Uh, in the New American Standard, it says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. But the word is the same word that's used um, in reference to I have written before or it was written ahead of time. And so what he's saying here, basically, that it was already written about these men that they would receive this kind of condemnation if they were involved in these kinds of practices. Okay? you can see some of your like Kittle theological dictionary on that particular word too. Very interesting word. It does not mean ordained as it is translated in the King James version. The word is not appointed um, which the the normal word would be uh, coming from Tasso? Terrasso? Anyway, Anyway, it's not the word appointed. It's the word for written. I'll give you the other references in the Bible that use the same words. Well, well, let's look at them. Romans 15, 4. It's the same word. Romans 15, 4 says this. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. And the word here is pre-written or written before. Whatever was written in earlier times coming from prografo. Okay. Galatians 3.1 You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The word publicly portrayed is prographo. He was written out as crucified. Ephesians 3.3 3. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Now this could re- this could mean that he wrote before in another letter, or it could be that he's just saying um, as noted above, because the word is used that way commonly. You know, when we talk when we read something it says see above, or as noted above, or as I wrote above, or as mentioned above, and it means in the same article, but it means um, just further. Um, Above, further before, okay. As I wrote before, prographo. Now the same word is used and it's mistranslated to be ordained, and it's not ordained. The men were not ordained to a condemnation, but it was written before about these kinds of men and the kinds of things that they would do. Okay, um, Acts thirteen forty-eight. I've already given to you, and it's as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. You see, it all depends on how you want to read it. Since both of both of them appear to be in the aorist tenses. Okay, um, Matthew 28:16. I'm going to give you a list of scriptures of other places where the word ordained is used. Matthew 28:16. Luke seven eight Luke seven eight Acts fifteen two Acts twenty two ten Acts twenty eight twenty three Romans thirteen one Romans 13.1 and 1 Corinthians 16.15 1 Corinthians 16.15 Very interesting, the last verse. The word ordained is used in the reflexive. They ordained themselves. Most of the places it's used in the passive. But in this case it's used in the reflexive. They ordained themselves. How about that? Okay. So, uh, the reason I'm giving you all these references and we're going through all of these different scriptures is that I don't expect you to take things on my word. You see, that all these things are this way. I'm just trying to give some basic explanations and then you guys are going to have to do a lot of study on your own because you're going to have to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. That's your responsibility, you see. So, I want you to have the verses so you can look them up and so you can, you know, look at some of these things. And I'm just giving some thoughts as we go on... Uh, uh, things that might not be obvious from it unless you maybe know a little Greek or something like that. Some of you know a little Greek that runs a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Yes, the word predestinate. The word predestinate. Now, this is where it gets interesting, folks. dum da dum no, no, that wasn't what I was doing. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. All oh, right, in Ephesians 1. Everybody's ready, man. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. Verses 5 and 6, actually. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself According to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Okay, now a lot of things we could note about this, but there's some specific things I want to point out. He predestined us, and at this point Paul is talking about Christians, He predestined us to what? Adoption as sons. Right? Now for so long, we have been told that this word means salvation. That it's very difficult to get it out of our little heads that it does not mean salvation. And I will show you Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. We've been told that the words adoption of sons or the idea of adoption has to do with um, salvation. Salvation. And some versions even translate that there. He's predestined us to be his children. Really bad. Romans chapter 8 and verse 23 gives a definition of adoption as sons. And it says that it has not happened to us yet. It is in the future for Christians. And not only this, but we also, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, that's Christians, we, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The adoption as sons is the redemption of our body. It is not salvation. It hasn't happened to us yet, folks. Our bodies haven't been redeemed. We're waiting for that. We're predestined to that. Back to Ephesians 1. If you are in Christ, that is, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, that's how, through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. If you are in the Beloved, you have been predestined to have your bodies redeemed and to be son-placed. The word adoption as sons means to be son-placed. And it has to do with the coming of age of a son in a Jewish family. It does not have to do with being a child in the family. You are already a child in the family, and then you get adopted as a son. You become son-placed when you come of age. And we are going to be placed as sons to be the complete and full heirs that we are supposed to be when our bodies are redeemed. Hasn't happened yet. We're going to be placed completely as sons in the future. We're waiting our adoption as sons. That is the redemption of our body. Okay. He predestined us to the adoption of sons. I got a question. What do you do with that verse in Galatians
2: where it talks
0: about having received the adoption of sons? You know, that one where it talks about, about four five. Galatians four, five, and six. Oh. I I thought you meant chapters 4, 5, and 6. Yeah, it doesn't say. It doesn't say when it is. When When the fullness of the time came in, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In other words, we get redeemed in order that we might receive the adoption as sons. It would be future, it would be past the time that we're redeemed. We get redeemed in order that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see? Then it goes on and says, and because you are sons, God has, to dec- remember, a, a son is still a son. Even before he's been son-placed, he's a son. You You see? Okay, but because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay, so it would still be future. Was that something else you wanted, Will? Okay. Okay, now let's go on to um, Ephesians 1 and verse 11. Notice that the word predestined, by the way, is used for the thing to which Christians have been predestined not to whether or not you're saved or lost. That's why the word adoption of sons is so important there because it doesn't mean salvation. It means the redemption of our body, or being sun-placed. Okay? Um, uh, verses uh, 11 and 12. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Now that's fairly simple because of the, the very words that are there. It says that He is. Pre- if you skip out all the phrases that, that Paul the apostle sort of throws in, and boy does he throw the phrases in! You know that from verse three to verse fourteen is one phrase. It's one mouthful in the Greek. It doesn't stop. It just goes... And he goes on for... How many verses is it? It's all one thought. There isn't even a sentence break, folks, in the whole thing. The periods we put in there are sort of... You know, to try to help us a little bit. That's in English, yeah. Okay, now I'm going to read it without all the phrases in between. Having been predestined to the end that we should be to the praise of his glory <laughs> having been predestined to the end that we should be to the praise of his glory and the we is whom those who first trusted in Christ he predestined that if those that those people who trusted in Christ would be to the praise of his glory you see so christians were predestined to be to the praise of god's glory and the only way you can get out of being to the praise of God's glory is by not being a Christian. So you can get out of it, but... Why am I? Okay? We were predestined to be to the praise of His glory. Um, the, the phrase, in Him, in the Beloved, in Christ, is used so many times in this passage, and yet, so frequently, it is people don't pay attention to the fact that the words, in Him, is a condition. You see? If any man be in Christ... He is a new cre- He's a new creature. Paul wrote that too. That means that people can be not in Christ? Yes, people can be not in Christ. So the whole, all the things here that refer to in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved are all conditions. If you're not in there, you're not in there. You see? Okay. Um, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7 which is commonly not translated predestinate 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7 but it's the same word proorizo which means to predestinate or to foreordain But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory What is the word predestined the word there in uh, the King James ordained okay there's not the simple word ordained, it's the word foreordained or predestined. Okay, Um, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined or foreordained before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, God predestined wisdom, and that wisdom was centered in the cross. Now that's in the context of starting with verse 1 of the chapter. About his desiring not to know anything but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this is the wisdom that he's talking about. The wisdom of the cross. And not, not fancy words of men's wisdom and persuasive speech and so forth. But I determined not to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And those then goes on to say, we don't use the wisdom of men, but we preach in the wisdom of God. You see? We're centering that around the cross. And so this wisdom, God has predestined. God has predestined this wisdom. And since it refers to before the ages, it could refer again as we saw before to it was in God's mind potentially that if man sinned, that this might have to take place. But anyway, God predestined wisdom. In this case, it's not talking about people. It's talking about wisdom. Okay, folks. We go on to Romans 8, 29 and 30. Here we go. This is probably the problem passage. Very simple, but it's probably the problem passage. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Let's read them. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And we've already talked about that. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Okay? Now, one thing I'd like to point out at the beginning is the word glorified here does not mean necessarily having your body redeemed. We are constantly taught that the word glorification means to have your body redeemed. Okay? Well, it doesn't mean that here. The word means to to give honor, means to be made glorious, And such and similar phrases. It's used in a lot of cases concerning Christians present tense, concerning Jesus in His earthly life, and so forth. And everything that's mentioned, every definition that's given of this word can refer to the Christian present tense. It does not mean something that happened in the future. And to speak of the past as if it to speak of the future as if it's already happened is weird anyway. Okay. So then, when we looked at the beginning of that, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined. To become the, become conformed to the image of his son, we saw that that was a reference to a group. Those people that love God and were called according to his purpose, if they fit into that group, then not only number one did he foreknow them because he foreknew the group, but he predestined that anybody that was in that group was going to be conformed to the image of his son. And not only did he do that, did he predestine that they'd be conformed to the image of his son, but he also called them, the ones, that, the ones that would eventually be in that group. He called them. He justified them. He made a way for them to be able to be forgiven. And He he, uh, made a way for them to have glory given to them. In other words, if you fit into the group, all of those things apply to you. And if you don't fit into the group, then God didn't have that planned for you. You see, now I've used the words, the last things that I said, sounds very predestinarian, doesn't it? You see? then God didn't have that planned for you. See? You see how those words can be used and yet they don't necessarily have to mean that you were predetermined to be saved or lost. Do you understand what I mean? Okay, if you're not in the group, God didn't have it planned for you because He had it predestined only for those people that become Christians. He didn't have it predestined for those people that don't become Christians. Now, when I say He didn't have it planned for you, that doesn't mean that He planned that you were going to be lost. It means that He didn't have it planned that if you were not a Christian, then you weren't going to have it. I should put it positively. He had it planned that if you were a Christian, you would have it, and if you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't. You see? So, if you don't become a Christian, he didn't have it planned for you. See, those words can be used, and they sound very predestinarian. And it's the same way that a lot of the words are taken in the scripture. And because they're improperly exegeted or out of their context or something like that or not taken with all the other verses of Scripture that have to do with foreknowledge or ordination or predestination or whatever, it gives us the impression that God foreordained people. And yet, if you look in any good Greek uh, commentary, not commentary, but lexicon, and you'll see that it always says that it's uh, predestined refers to that to which the person has been predestined and not to the person. That God doesn't predestinate people. He predestinates uh, things for people. Predestinated that they would have glory if they were Christians, that they would be conformed to the image of His Son, you saying things like that, that they would be to the praise of his glo- of the glory of His grace, or however that goes. What's this word? For, for know no, means to know ahead of time. I
2: don't know, for
0: for whom He foreknew, okay, whom He foreknew, we already talked about that. Whom He foreknew, He also predestined. The whom that He's talking about there is a group, and who's in the group and who's not in the group is conditional. Upon whether or not you love God and are called according to His purpose. Okay? Ruth elected herself right into the line of the Messiah by sticking with Naomi. <laughs> what is the call of God in this context? Well, uh, it seems like the call is incumbent on, on the group. You know, if you're not a part of the group, He doesn't call you. That's right. Because
2: it's it the Spirit, you know, Christ said. If,
0: if yeah, well, no man can come unto, unto the Father except the Spirit, draw him. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. You see, we have to balance those things out with how they are in their context, you see. Yeah, but
2: I, I was asked, what I'm asking is, what is this call in this
1: context?
0: Um, well, that's why I gave the reference before to um, God's strategy in human history, because they deal with the word with a word study of election and choosing. Okay? And so they deal with that, that, that point. That you are, if you are in the group, that is, if you become a Christian, then you are in the group of the chosen, or the called. But if you don't become a Christian, you're not in the group. And they deal with that very well in that, so I thought I'd just, you know, I wouldn't hand, try to handle that in this then. In this session. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I'm not going to try to handle it in this session. Be all night. Okay. Um, now I've given you the verses that have to do with foreknowledge and the verses that have to do with predestination and the verses that have to do with ordination. Uh, the word ordained, by the way, means to be appointed to an office, which is a rather interesting word. Be appointed to an office to be ordained. Um, now the question is, where we go from here? <laughs> to <The> bed. <laughs> See if we're going to bid to bid okay let me you've got the verses of the scripture that have to do with God's being is, is in time and you see phrases there like um, um, God said after these things I will do this I remember when I took you out of the land of Egypt um, and it, it, it refers to him as having a before and an after a past a memory uh, a future the thoughts that I have planned for you in the future are thoughts of peace and comfort and not of destruction. And things like that. Um, he he speaks of the future. He speaks of himself as having a past, and et cetera, et cetera. Now you can study those verses for yourself since you have the list. And uh, I just want to point out a couple of um, couple of places, things like uh, Deuteronomy, things that, that appear to be obviously God seems to have foreknowledge. Yes, yes. Where are you? Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, verses 20 and 21. Deuteronomy 31, verses 20 and 21. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. He's saying what they're going to choose to do in the future, isn't he? Okay? Then it shall come about, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. How did he know that they would do that? if they got into those circumstances, because He knew their hearts, present tense. See? I know the intent which they're developing in their hearts against me today before I bring them into the land. That's how He knew what they were going to do. I thought I caught God one time when I was studying this. I started studying this about uh, eight years ago. Um, and I thought I, caught, I thought I got God. I said, I got you, God. And uh, he went, oh yeah? And you know, I think every now and then that I got him, but uh, right out of my grasp every time, okay? There is no wisdom or counsel against the Lord. Um, Now, um, Exodus, yes, Exodus chapter 4, here's where I thought I caught God, you see. Um, Exodus chapter 4 and verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses and He said, Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And I thought, uh aha. At least I I can understand how God could say when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart because God God could know what... what, um, Aaron's heart was like that when he saw his brother he was going to go glad to see ya you know after 40 years away um, now I can see that but the thing is um, I, I thought I caught God because it says he's coming out to meet you see so I read on verse 27 now the Lord said to Aaron go to meet Moses in the wilderness so he went and met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him Right, okay. got me again Okay the way he knew was because God planned to do it okay there's other verses around uh, exodus 33:5 take off your ornaments from you that I may know what I will do with you uh, Genesis 22 Abraham now I know uh, Genesis 18 I will go down now and find out if they have done according to the cry which has come to me and if not I will know um, uh, Jeremiah, the thought—the thought that is—that they would offer their sons and daughters to idols. The thought never even entered my mind. It's said three times in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, the thought never entered my mind. Jeremiah chapter—is it chapter 32? Okay, I've got another one here in Jeremiah chapter um, four. I think it is. This is a different case. You guys can run those down. They're all listed in your list of uh, scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. And I thought, or and I said, After she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Now how is it that God thought after she does these things she'll return to me? But she didn't. Oops. God had a wrong thought. Oh. I thought, well, at least they'll be you know smart enough that after they do all these things and everything bad happens to them that they'll they'll turn around, you know, they won't be that dumb. But but they didn't. Okay, wrong thought, God. Anyway, a lot of verses around like that, folks, and you've got the, you've got the list, so I just thought I'd mention a few maybe for the, for the tape. Lots of verses like that. And, and Exodus 32, and Moses said to the Lord, change your mind about the harm that you're going to do to the people. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm that he said that he'd do to the people. And you've got a list of 36 places where God changed his mind in the Old Testament as well in your verses. So, I think we'll um, stop.